This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. This is a podcast bringing you some of the conversations from this year's Idea Fest, a two day event at the University of Wisconsin Madison that brought together politicians, artists, activists, community leaders, and others to talk about the big issues shaping our community, our state, and beyond. Today, a one on one with Senator Ron Johnson. Senator Johnson was with us for the first ever Idea Fest in 2017. And this year, he was back for a conversation with WKOW's Capitol Bureau Chief Emily Fannin. The two had a extensive talk about immigration reform, foreign relations, government shutdowns, and the state of the 2020 Democratic primaries for president. All right, let's dive in. I hope you enjoy the interview. For joining us, I'm joined by uh, Senator Ron Johnson. How you doing? Good. Happy to be here. Good. Appreciate it. Uh, so you're you headed back to D.C. after a five-year break. So what's going on the Hill? How's, five, how's it five going? Five-week. Five-week break. What did I say? Five months. Five-year. Five-year. <laughs> things are going great so far. I guys. wish. <laughs> How are things going? Well, we just went back and tried to get more and more people confirmed. Uh, we have a pretty good backlog of uh, administration officials that. We're having to go through the, the whole voting process. So in the past, normally a lot of these uh, nominees would be confirmed just by voice vote or by unanimous consent, but we're having to go through the whole voting process. So it's definitely bogging down the Senate. Now, one issue that a lot of people thought was going to be a topic of debate was gun reform. Uh, Senate leader Mitch McConnell said, well, I'm going to wait for the president to propose something. What do you think about that? Should this issue be waited on? Well, I think... Uh, what McConnell's saying is no sense debating a bill that's going to for sure be vetoed. So he's kind of looking to the president for leadership. But I know the president is talking to people like uh, Pat Toomey and Joe Manchin and Chris Murphy and you know, trying to figure out uh, what, if anything, we could enact that would actually be effective. And you know, for my part, what I've, what I've tried to uh, inter- introduce and put into the, the process is a bill we called LASA. It's uh, Luke and Alex School Safety Act. We, we had a meeting or a hearing uh, back in July with uh, Max Schachter and Tom Hoyer, their fathers of two of the uh, Alex and Luke who were killed in Parkland. And they've had some very practical suggestions, solutions, you know, after Columbine, after Sandy Hook, after uh, Parkland, you've had parents get together, uh, you've had commissions formed, a bunch of recommendations in terms of what we could do to improve school safety. Unfortunately, a lot of those recommendations just fall in deaf ears and you only really have uh, individuals in those states, in those regions where the tragedies occur that really you know, take up the, the charge and, and enact things. And so what uh, Max has done in particular is uh, in the conclusion from their commission was they have four tiers of recommendations. And this is just generally true. It's not across the board true, but generally it's you know, the first tier, you know, completely non-controversial, relatively easy, uh, not very costly things you can do, like... And by the way, we do an awful lot of these things in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, 
past legislator actually passed about 10 of the 22 recommendations from Parkland prior to Parkland actually occurring. I mean, they had already done these things like a single entry into schools, uh, locks on classrooms. If you have windows in classrooms, at least shades, so if there's an active shooter, uh, safe corners, rehearsal for those things. Uh, interoperability of communications between law enforcement. If you have video feeds, make sure those things are fed right into law enforcement. Again, common sense things that I make the analogy toward after 9-11. And by the way, I hope we can talk a little bit about our hearing that we held at the 9-11 Memorial on Monday. But uh, after 9-11, I, I would argue the most effective countermeasure, the most effective uh, reform we, we enacted there was just simply hardening the cockpit doors. Didn't cost much, totally non-controversial, but is probably the most effective. We haven't had a, a airplane, commercial aircraft use as a weapon ever since. So uh, I kind of refer to what the Parkland parents uh, recommended was sort of the, the hardening the cockpit door recommendations. You know, one of the things that if there is an active shooter, you can mitigate it, you can, you know, reduce the tragedy. Uh, these tragedies, unfortunately, are going to continue to incur. And, you know, you were talking a little bit about preventable measures in classrooms, but these recent mass shootings have been out in the open. And the president kind of was supportive of universal background checks, then kind of backtracked and back and forth. Is that something that you would support? Well, we'll take a look at, you know, what, what actually gets introduced. You know, we'd have the Brady Bill. We have background checks. Nobody knows exactly the percent of uh, gun sales that have gone through background checks. Uh, the New York Times did a search one time, thought it was about 87%. Um, that hasn't presented these, prevented these tragedies. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is there are 400 million guns in America. Um, I know that one of the more recent uh, shootings, uh, apparently the, the individual probably would have been denied a, a background check in a private sale, but it's also looking like he bought it from somebody who was illegally producing guns and it was an illegal sale. So. It, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to realize if somebody's going to break the law and slaughter a fellow human being, they're not going to have a whole lot of problem violating gun laws either. And again, we have 400 million guns, people are going to be able to get them. So I'm always looking at, you know, what, what will actually have an impact? What will have an effect? What will actually mitigate something without uh, infringing on constitutional rights? What about that's, how, that's how I'm always going to evaluate these things. What about red flag laws that would remove the guns, uh, the courts to petition to remove guns from people who well, are... The, the, the devil's in the detail. You know, we already have things like involuntary commitment. Uh, so if you're going to take away somebody's constitutional right, you know, their basic freedom, in, involuntary commitment, or uh, take away their Second Amendment right, you need a pretty robust due process. You know, what are, what are the standards going to be? Uh, those are very difficult issues. Red flag laws, by and large, are passed by the states. You know, most law enforcement is governed by the states, and that's probably the appropriate place for that to, to occur. The discussion in terms of red flag laws in, in uh, federal government right now, uh, under Lindsey Graham's chairmanship of judiciary, is mainly, you know, sometime a grant program uh, called incentivize. I'd say, you know, prov provide guidelines. We're going to provide grants to help states enact red, red flag laws. Let's make sure that we provide guidelines whether it be very strong due process for those individuals, just, just as we have with involuntary commitment. Uh, we'll go back to a little bit what you mentioned earlier. You were at, um, in New York also this week on 9-11. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, if, if you haven't been to New York and seen the 9-11 uh, Museum and, and uh, Memorial, you should. Uh, it's an awesome place. We, we were fortunate enough to be given a tour by the, the woman who, who was there from really day one of the she used to work for the Smithsonian. Now she's curator for that museum. And the thought that goes into that uh, is really pretty awesome. It's a pretty minimalist 
type of uh, museum. It, it's really just using the, the cavern, the space that was, you know, the foundation for uh, the, the World Trade Center. And it, it, you know, we had a dinner the night before. The, the hearing was with three former Secretaries of Homeland Security, two Democrats, one Republican. We had three Democrat senators, three Republicans. And the night before, we had a dinner after we did the tour of the museum. And I think it was Mitt Romney and Gary Peters' suggestion, let's, let's all go around the table and let's just describe where we were, what we were doing on 9-11. And first of all, we had a pretty interesting group of people. Michael Chertoff was in the Justice Department. He was given the task of, of really trying to determine who caused 9-11. Jay Johnson was an attorney. He watched the second plane hit the tower, watched them both fall down. Uh, Janet Napolitano was attorney general in, in, uh, in Arizona, whose governor called her up and said, I, I need to activate the National Guard. Do I have the authority? Just do it. We'll, you know, we'll ask for forgiveness later. So, you know, really interesting, really interesting. I was just in, in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, our plant. Um, one thing we found out in the museum, two billion people worldwide, two billion people watched 9-11 real time. And, you know, so I experienced like the, the vast majority of those two billion people just fixated on a TV, watching the second plane hit, watching the smoke rise from the Pentagon, realizing the world's just changed dramatically. And it has. And I guess my message in all this is what, what I certainly took away from that, and I think what we all really remembered. Yeah, we remembered where we were. We remembered how we thought. But I think the, the most relevant part of that is we also remembered what September 12th felt like, where we had a completely unified nation. Now, unfortunately, it takes those types of tragedies to unify whether it's a community or a state or... or or, or a nation, it'd be nice if we could at least get some measure of that unity back to try and start solving some of these problems. Let's talk a little bit about the trade war. Um, I know you're often asked about it because traveling the state, I'm sure you hear about it and the effects that tariffs are having on farmers. Um, what are your talks like with the president when you, when you go back there and tell him that it's really hurting a lot of people here? Well, he knows full well I'm not a real uh, supporter of the strategy he's undertaken. Um, First of all, most, and this has been really pretty amazing to me, whether I talk to farmers or manufacturers here in Wisconsin, even though they're being harmed by the trade war, almost the last comment to them, to me, is, is invariably, well, we support what the president's trying to do. Uh, America, for decades, has been very generous with our markets, very magnanimous, and our trading partners have taken advantage of it. We, we let China into the World Trading Organization on the assumption that if they grew their economy. If there's greater prosperity for people, it would naturally result in a more pluralistic, more democratic, more free nation. We thought wrong. That hasn't happened. And China is the primary abuser. They, they are stealing hundreds of billions of dollars of intellectual property, not only from America, but from the rest of the developed countries. Uh, just leapfrogging us. And you know, they steal that technology, then they, you know, because they're starting out with something new, they can leapfrog us. And so they They've used that theft to be very successful in their economies, and they continue to violate uh, the rules of the World, Tra World Trading Organization. So, you know, we need to bring them into compliance. We need to get them to stop stealing our stuff. Uh, I just don't agree with the way the president is pretty well engaged in trade war worldwide. What we should be doing is focusing on the primary problem, which is China, and we should get the rest of the world combined, allied, toward making China comply. So you would say you're hearing more from farmers that they're willing to be patient 
or well again their 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 patience is running thin yeah um but they they really have given this uh, administration a fair amount of slack in terms of trying to bring China into compliance. Um, what are your thoughts about the U.S. Uh, economy? Um, there's uh, new polls that have been out that show about 60% of people are fearful a recession is near. Um, what are your thoughts that, do you think that's going to be happening next year? There's experts that are kind of on both sides of the aisle when it comes to that issue that, yes, it's happening, nah, we got a little bit. Well, first time I met President Trump as a candidate, right after he'd pretty well locked up the the nomination, he was talking about a group of 20 senators, and they were all talking about, he was talking about uh, his tax reform plans. And you know, we were all asking questions, but uh, all, all he was really talking about was tax reform and, and immigration. I raised my hand and said, well, Mr. President, or Mr. Trump at the time, said the, the one thing that I hear, and having been a manufacturer myself, the, the biggest problem I have in terms of you know, economic friction is overregulation. Uh, we'd held hearings in my committee. Uh, a number of different uh, organizations have studied that and put a uh, price tag on the cost of uh, federal regulations at about $2 trillion per year. That's in a $19 trillion economy. It's an enormous cost. And it wasn't too far after that that President Trump started, or at the time, candidate Trump started talking about the $2 trillion regulatory burden. And as president, it's really the first thing he attacked. And he really did a great job. We stopped adding to the regulatory burden. And we actually started reducing it somewhat. You combine that with uh, the, a more competitive tax system, and I think people are, should realize I wasn't a real fan of the, the, the tax bill, but it's better than what we had, so I, in the end, voted to support it. Those two things brought a great deal of certainty, a great deal of optimism, the animal spirits of our economy, and we were growing over 3%. Uh, business investment was dramatically increasing. I think one quarter increased something like over 11%. The last quarter actually shrank. And I would argue what has caused that decline is really the, the, the hand grenade tossed in this thing of the trade war and the instability, uncertainty that the whole trade war has uh, brought onto our economy. It's unfortunate. Uh, again, I agree with what President Trump is trying to do. We're, we want fair and reciprocal trade. I would call on Mark Buchan and, and uh, Ron Kind and Gwen Moore to put a lot of pressure on Nancy Pelosi, bring up the USMCA, and let's at least ratify that trade deal so that our two lar- largest trading partners, by and large, Canada and Mexico, that we have that trade agreement uh, set. So again, we can focus on the real abuser, which is China. Do you think voters should be fearful, though, that a recession could hit next year? Well, well recession, you know, we'll always have sometime in the future recession. I don't think you have to be particularly fearful of it. I think the economy is still quite strong, but it needs to be stronger. And that's what President Trump and this administration did deliver the first couple of years uh, by, again, we stopped adding the regulatory burden, have more competitive tax system. That brings certainty and stability. I'm I'm a business guy. Uh, If you're going to invest, risk your capital, you want to do it in as certain and stable environment as possible. And any type of uncertainty reduces your willingness to take risk. And that's what we're seeing when we actually see a reduction in the growth of business investment. Uh, that should be a pretty pretty loud alarm bell to this administration and telling people like uh, Peter Navarro and, and uh, Bob Lighthizer, uh, wrap up these negotiations, get these deals done so we can return the stability that uh, we had early in the administration. I have to ask you about Russia. Um, you had plans to visit for a congressional delegation, but your visa was denied. What happened? Well, I'm, I'm chairman of the European Subcommittee on Foreign Relations. So when 
Ambassador Huntsman became ambassador, he reached out to me and wanted me to lead an effort. And I thought a you know, well thought out effort to have parliamentary exchanges, have members of Congress meet with members of their Duma, their legislature, or their parliament, and, and at least begin to establish relationships. You know, Putin is not going to be in power forever. I think any, everybody would like to have better relationships with Russia. But that's not going to happen until they change their behavior. But, you know, we had a sincere effort. Uh, had a trip scheduled with uh, my ranking member, uh, Senator Jean Shaheen, to go over there in December 2017, and then Russia just denied her entry. You know, playing games. What they're trying to do is get more of their members of Duma who will not get visas for the U.S. They, they wanted to do a swap. Well, we'll let her in if you let some of our thugs in. Well, that wasn't going to happen, so we canceled that trip. I did go... Uh, during July of 2018, I, I joined a, a congressional delegation of uh, appropriators, and we had talks for two days with members of the Duma. So, so I'd already been in Moscow. I've been over there. And so we planned another trip. I was going to go over with Chris Murphy, again, bipartisan delegation, and they're just playing games. Like I say, it's a, it's a petty affront. It, it's really contrary to both of our interests, to at least not to discuss things. But I went to Ukraine. I went to Serbia and Kosovo uh, on the trip instead. Any plans to try again? Not in the, no, I mean, no. Th they're not going to reverse course there. If, if, if any of their members of Duma can actually get a visa to the U.S., I'm happy to sit down with them here. You know, we might meet in, in different, uh, you know, I'm, I've been the past U.S. representative to the uh, U.N. General Assembly. I'll probably be that again in the future. I, I'd be willing to meet with them in, in those types of settings as well. Uh, let's talk about immigration. Um, senior White House advisor and Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, um, introduced an immigration plan um, that which you saw ahead of 2020. What did you think of it? Well, I've been working with Jared quite some time. Uh, it's, what Jared is trying to do is, is take it one step at a time. And so he hasn't introduced a comprehensive, or he does, hasn't developed a comprehensive immigration reform, but he's really focusing on two key areas. One, border security, fixing our, our horribly broken uh, immigration system right now that's being exploited by human traffickers, uh, leading to these enormous numbers of people coming in from Central America with, with asylum claims, most of them invalid asylum claims, uh, but also change our visa system. One of the things I found out when I got there is we, we have, I don't even know the, the exact number, it's close to 100, if not over 100 different types of visas. Uh, it's, a, it's just a mess. And so one of my first suggestions uh, when we first started meeting on this is, well, let's simplify that, and he's done that. And the big focus of, of his visa system is really focused on, on high skill. And by the way, I, I, I want all skill. You know, I, I want to be able to design our legal immigration system to fit our economy, no, no matter what the skill. But again, he's focusing on high skill uh, with the assumption that Silicon Valley, uh, who generally is more left-leaning, would help support that type of effort. But right now in America, we, we grant about 1.1 million people per year legal permanent residency. We're very generous. I mean, we're, we have a very generous legal immigration system. Probably about 12% are tied to employment, but of that 12%, half is a family, family member of the person getting employment. So you could argue it may only be about 6% of the individuals who grant legal permanent residency have anything tied to a job. The rest is pretty much, you know, uh, primarily family reunification. If you compare that to Canada or Australia, about 60%, 60% are tied to the economy. That, to me, that's a much more rational legal immigration system, and that's what Jared Kushner is trying to, and this administration is trying to do, is 
convert that, that le- or you know, transition that legal immigration system from one of primarily family reunification, where a very high percentage of those individuals are some sort of uh, government support program to people coming in this country contributing to our economy. Uh, one, one, uh, I quote this with trepidation because this is off the top of my head and I haven't seen it in writing, but when he presented this last week, I, I think he said something like, currently the average wage level of people that we grant legal permanent residency is somewhere in the twenty dollars to $30,000 range, maybe something over thirty. Again, don't quote me, don't put a fact check me, I'm trying to give you something relative. His system would be something like 98000 Again, really focusing it toward high skills. And he's also talking, and if that happened, by the way, that type of immigration system would score very well on a CBO score. It would actually add revenue to the government because if you're bringing people in and they're working at high skill high skill jobs at $98,000 a year, government's going to be collecting a fair amount of tax revenue. So again, that's to me, it's just a more rational system. Uh, I want to try and work with my committee. Uh, we don't have a lot, a whole lot of legislative jurisdiction on this issue. That's going to be my next question. But, but we've, we've held case. we've held 40 hearings on on border security. I would say our committee is probably the most informed committee in Congress on the whole issue of immigration and the problems on the border. And you know, we also have a very nonpartisan committee, as you can see from our our hearing at the 9/11 memorial. Uh, we'll really work together to try and solve this problem, go through that problem-solving process. It's, it's one of the things I bring to the table here is, having been a manufacturer, you're solving problems all the time. There's, there's actually a pretty well-defined process you go through. You, you gather information, you define the problem, you try and identify root causes, then you establish an achievable goal, then you start design, designing solutions. What I find in Washington way too often is people already have a solution. they got a piece of legislation. So, okay, well, what, what problem is it designed to solve? Is it achievable? And oftentimes those things are completely divorced from reality. I want to bring up uh, the border wall. Uh, President Trump is still adamant that China will pay for it. But recently, to board a little bit additional fencing along uh, the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, he took some military funds away. And that impacted Wisconsin here at Truox Field. Um, do you think that was the right decision to take that away? Well, first of all, the, the fact that we have any kind of division in terms of America's desire to secure its border is just unfortunate. I think we all, we should all agree that we should have a secure border. Uh, I'm happy to ha- have uh, legal immigration, but it has to be a legal process. It shouldn't be illegal. It shouldn't be overwhelming our system. Uh, on a bipartisan basis, people have supported billions of dollars. Since I've been there, billions of dollars of, of funding for better barriers at the border. All of a sudden, President Trump came in, he made this a big issue, and all of a sudden it became a divisive issue. It's unfortunate. We do need better barriers. But, better, but the wall doesn't fix the current problem when it comes to uh, primarily people coming as a family unit from Central America and exploiting our, our really lax immigration laws. So that's what we need to fix. And, and let me describe the problem here. Asylum is a very well-defined claim. Uh, it's governed by treaty. Uh, it's basically ha- you have to be persecuted by your government or your government can do nothing to prevent persecution uh, over five very well-defined areas. And, and I, I can't remember all of them, but it's you know, things like religion and uh, affiliation to a group, uh, sexual orientation, race. Um, and most people coming from Central America, that's not why they're fleeing. As sympathetic is the reason they're fleeing for better op- economic opportunity. It's not a valid asylum claim. But we've set the initial hurdle so low it's called the credibly fear standard. All somebody has to say is, well, I'm afraid to go home. Okay, well, come on in. We have at least 800,000 
cases backlogged in the immigration system. Uh, these individuals are given a notice to appear. The coyotes, by the way, the, the human traffickers and smugglers, uh, call that notice to appear a permiso, uh, and enticing people. It really was the DACA memorandum uh, that sparked all this. It was the catalyst for this enormous flow of people coming in. And this year, we're already at about 640,000 people coming in as either unaccompanied child, but primarily as part of a family unit. And it'll probably hit about 700,000 by the end of September, which is the end of this fiscal year. Back in 2014, when President Obama called a humanitarian crisis, 137,000. So you can see how this, this problem has just exploded. Until we get control over this, the problem will just grow because it's working for people. And I, I do have to point out the human trafficking element of this. People aren't understanding how a lot of these individuals aren't even paying the coyotes, the human traffickers, money. They're indebted to them. And we have reports now, some of these family units, they're, they're just being processed with the, over the course of a week or two. They're being let into America. Some of them are showing up at stash houses, are being beaten. The beatings are being videotaped. Those videotapes are being sent back to Central America as extortion, uh, demanding ransom payments to their family members. So you do have to understand the the vile nature, the evil of this human trafficking model that our laws are allowing to be exploited by some of the most evil people on the planet. So it's a completely broken system. We need to get control over it. We have to turn an illegal flow of people coming in here trying to improve their lot in life into legal flow. You also have to understand you know, that there are people waiting in line legally to get in this country. We can't let in all comers. There was a Gallup poll that said, uh, 158 million people around the world want to emigrate to America, 42 million in Latin America alone. You know, our population is 325 million. We, we can't take all comers. We have to control the process. And anybody that comes in this country illegally, they're jumping in front of the line. It's not fair for the people that are actually trying to do it the legal way. So it's an illegal process right now that we have to get control over. Now you guys are here for, oh, you'll be back and you'll be in... Oh, well, that, that, money, that money will be easily refunded, okay? I mean, through the appropriation process. So Trump, Trump took what he, action he could take because he, he has the legal authority to do so. The appropriation process gives the president a great deal of authority. And so he remark, or, or ear, re earmarks those funds for a different area, and Congress will just backfill that, that uh, money in 2020's appropriation bill. Trucks field to get the fund. I have, I have no doubt the Trix field. If you the got, money. we got questions. We got note cards later. If anyone wants to fill them out, we'll have, we'll have time for questions later. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. If you had one thing that you would like to see get done during this time before you leave for fall for winter break, I'll get my seasons mixed up, what would it be? What's the number one priority for you? Well, right now, and I'm, I'm hoping a publication will print my op-ed, but I just wrote one on passing our Prevent Government Shutdown Act. I mean, that's kind of the... The problem we have right now is even though there was a deal done where we suspended the debt ceiling again, uh, agreed to $300 billion more in spending to satisfy everybody, furthermore, during our kids' future, there's no guarantee that it'll prevent a government shutdown. So in the state of Wisconsin, if we have dysfunction in, in 
the legislature and, and you know, in government, and we don't pass an appropriation bill, we don't shut down parts of the state government. We just fund it at last year's level. I mean, doesn't that make total sense? It's not what happens in the federal government. You go, keep going through these, you know, the chaos and the cost of these government shutdowns. There's no reason for it. So uh, there's a bill that I took up in my committee. Uh, there are all kinds of different proposals, always have been. Uh, for whatever reason, the, the Appropriation Committee hates this. It's really more in their jurisdiction. But we crafted bills so we could take it up in my committee, Prevent Government Shutdown Act. And all it does, it doesn't increase spending, it doesn't decrease spending. It just keeps spending, spending flat if we haven't passed different appropriation bills. So I'm calling on McConnell and Schumer and Pelosi and the president to sign a very simple bill, Preventing Government Shutdown Act. I wanna bring up the two recent uh, resignations from Republican congressmen in Wisconsin, uh, Sean Duffy and Jim Sensenbrenner. Um, what do you think this means as this is a growing number of field of Republicans that are resigning from DC? Well, I think in both those uh, two individuals' case, it's more just a personal decision. You know, Jim's wife suffered a very serious stroke, and uh, he's been having to deal with that for the last couple of years. And, you know, uh, Jim is well past retirement age. Uh, I think he deserves a well-deserved uh, retirement, spend more time with his family. And Sean has a, you know, difficult uh, uh, pregnancy going on right now, and he'll have some real significant health issues with his, uh, his new child. So I think those are just primarily personal decisions. I don't, you know, they had no, I don't think any, risk of losing their, their seats in elections. So it wasn't those, driven by that at all. That was kind of leading to my next question. Um, most people know that those districts are safe Republican districts. Uh, but it, it, do you, what, you, know, you know, what do you Sh think? Sh Sean's wasn't before he won it. Very true. Um, but what do you think going into 2020 that those seats will be up for grabs? A lot of people, um, especially someone from your staff, is even considering a run um, for one of those positions. Well, first of all, I don't get involved in primaries. I mean, I, I let you know, in this case, the Republican primary voters decide. I just don't weigh in on that at all. Uh, from my standpoint, uh, you know, politically speaking, what I'm trying to do as a Republican is strengthen the Republican Party of Wisconsin. Uh, I th and I've been pretty vocal about this when we did a, the post-mortem or, or the assessment of what happened uh, in 2018. And we had a great deal of success in the state legislature. We only lost one seat in the assembly and picked up two state senate seats. And I'd argue that's largely because those types of races are very grassroots focused. And what happened at the statewide level, those were very campaign focused, you know, a bunch of TV ads, which people by and large ignore. And so I just, you know, for my own part, I, I realize the value of, of county chairs and, and uh, the grassroots effort that they uh, put forward in every election. So I'm trying to refocus the Republican Party of Wisconsin to concentrate on the nuts and bolts of running, winning, winning elections. That's the grassroots effort, volunteers. 2020 is going to be a big year, especially here in Wisconsin, as it's a big battleground state. So what are you, what are you doing on the ground uh, to just, help that? Just that. I mean, again, trying, you know, I, I don't have a vote on the executive committee. I'm really not part of elected leadership, but I'm the last statewide elected Republican. So I view that view that as a responsibility. You can clap. That's fine. Um, but, you know, so I'm just trying to provide my leadership and saying what we ought to do and analyze what went wrong from our standpoint in 2018. What do you think went wrong? Again, it was, it was really focused on campaign consultants and uh, spending a lot of money on ads that people largely ignore versus ignoring uh, the grassroots. So we, we focus on the grassroots effort. You've been asked a few times, and I know you're probably still debating. Uh, it's a few, few years away, but are you still considering uh, weighing your options come 2022? 
Well, I mean, reality changes. You know, when I said second and final, I meant it. Still my preference. Uh, I think 12 years is more than enough, but uh, I really felt, from my standpoint, uh, the, the House of Representatives would be our firewall against some of the, the more extreme leftist proposals. It might, it might be, it might be the, uh, the Senate. So I'll reevaluate after, after November 2020. Um, any legislation that you're trying to cross off your list uh, in these next few weeks? Well, I mentioned, uh, I mentioned End Government Shutdown Act, and I, I'm going to continue to pursue immigration reform. We have to fix the system. Uh, the president has been given no help whatsoever by Congress. Uh, so he's trying to do all this thing through executive action, then he gets blocked by the courts. I mean, I'm personally happy the Supreme Court, uh, I, is it stayed, uh, the, the injunction put on it by a, you know, one district court judge. I mean, these, these national injunctions put on by one district court have, have got to end. I mean, it's just not the way the cases ought to percolate up through the system. So, uh, again, he's not been able to be effective at providing deterrence and a consequence to reduce the flow of people coming to this country illegally. Congress has to act, but it's, again, it's, we're very divided. It's, it's uh, not an easy lift, but I'm going to continue to use my chairmanship in the committee to try and find a nonpartisan solution to this. And is there an immediate action that could be taken right now that you can get done with when it comes to immigration reform? Well, I think the number one thing we, we need to... we keep hearing comprehensive, comprehensive. Yeah. So, but... so an analogy, but it's a, on a much smaller uh, order magnitude. In 2005, we had a surge of, of Brazilians coming to this country illegally. They could fly into Mexico without a visa, and then they come up through our porous southern border. And 2005 is 31,000. So Michael Chertoff, who was Secretary of Homeland Security at the time, realized this is a problem. So he set up a, a process of expedited removal called Texas Hold'em. Just took those Brazilians and focused on them, put them for, you know, first in, first out, adjudicated their cases, and sent them back to Brazil. Uh, within 60 days, the flow was reduced by 90%. The following year, only 1,400 people came. So if you agree with President Obama that 2014 went 137,000, children and people coming as family units came to this country illegally, and that was a humanitarian crisis. This year we'll have 700,000. I would say that's, you know, six times the humanitarian crisis. We need to fix that, and the way to fix it is to have a consequence. We can't have complete open borders. We can't allow our laws to be exploited. So the, the solution there is remove or reduce that disparity between what is actually a valid asylum claim and what we allow people into our country and never have their, virtually never have their asylum claim even adjudicated. Because when they are, they get sent back. They get orders of removal. So fix that disparity. And you know, what's happening right now, because uh, this administration's proposal, well, their, their new rule is going to be enforced, where you have to claim asylum in the first country where you can claim asylum. So anybody coming from Central America has to claim asylum in Mexico first. And if they don't do that, they're going to be subject to removal. We won't have to go through the whole, the whole process. That would be a huge deterrent. That should reduce the flow. And then hopefully we can focus on, a, a from my standpoint, a more robust but a, a more rational uh, system of legal immigration tied to our economy. Okay. Um, did we get no cards passed out? Do people have time to fill some out? All right, this first one. Um, how can the Senate prevent the spread of an invasive species such as Asian carp into the Great Lakes. You know, th this is actually amazing because I just showed, my, just showed my wife a picture of the Asian carp jumping because we've got carp jumping on Lake Winnebago right now. So we're just looking at a video of this today. I mean, they do have this uh, 
electronic fence set up in the Illinois River to try and do that. You know, so far, I'm not, I'm not aware that any Asian carp have come in. I mean, it's a real problem. Uh, I have to admit, one of the things I was looking at is you, you're seeing these videos of, the, I mean, it's, if you haven't gone to YouTube, take a look at, just go Asian carp. And it's unbelievable. I don't know why they don't just net those things and try and kill them off the bat. So uh, this is a real problem. I mean, I agree. So we do, we, you know, there's, there is resources uh, that have been appropriated for combating this, and I support that. Uh, what are your views on gerrymandering? And I'm going to throw this one in as well. Do you, would you support a nonpartisan group to draw the new maps? Show me a nonpartisan group that would draw it up. L listen, our, you know, our, 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 the framers of our Constitution are very smart, and they, they pretty well put election in the hands of, of the states. Um, it's, elections are a necessarily political process. You know, if, if you know, I've always thought, why not just come up with a computer program, you know, that would be completely nonpartisan. Well, somebody's going to write that program. Somebody's going to write the algorithms going to decide that. So, you know, let's acknowledge the fact that it's a political process and recognize that, you know, elections 2020, when the census is, uh, is uh, taken, that's going to be the kind of the, the, the real election as it comes to districting. So would that but, be an But it's going to be a little, but the last thing you want is judges to decide. And that's what's happening in other states on both sides. You're, you're far better off acknowledging the fact districting is a political process. Get out there and affect the political process. So would that be a no that you don't support a nonpartisan? No, because there is no such thing as a nonpartisan. There is no such thing. Judges aren't nonpartisan. There, there is no such thing. Now, this is a quick one. Did you watch the Democratic presidential debate? I was flying back, but uh, God bless technology. I was actually able to watch it on Apple, my Apple streaming feed on the, on the plane and on my drive back. So I, I, heard, I heard most of it. What did you think? Well, I don't agree with their proposals. <laughs> <laughs> I get it, but did anything you know, stand out to you? No, I know a lot. I know a lot of the you people. You know that, yeah. First of all, I know a lot of the people on the stage. You know, what, one thing. Hopefully, this will give you comfort. We don't fight like cats and dogs in Washington D.C. It's a very collegial place. If if you could have all witnessed our dinner in New York, if you would have witnessed that hearing 9/11, you'd be provided at least some measure of comfort that we can get along. But let's face it, we do have a very divided body politic when it comes to some of these big issues. And, you know, I don't have a ready solution for that other than I just try and do what I, I do. You know, as chairman of Homeland Security, it is a, a pretty traditionally a very nonpartisan committee. We're, we're dealing with issues that we shouldn't be divided over. Uh, but using my chairmanship, we, we've had signed a law, uh, now probably over 100 pieces of legislation. Don't fix all the problems, but some pretty significant ones. And the way we do it is I concentrate on areas of agreement. So, okay, we disagree on that, but let's at, least, let's at least accomplish something here. Let's try and solve this problem where we agree. So that's just been my approach. I'm, I'm a business guy. You know, I, I try and find those areas of agreement. If President Trump supported universal background checks and handed that bill to Congress, would you support it and vote yes or no? Let me see what's exactly in it. Let me see to what extent it might infringe on on Second Amendment rights. Again, I'll, I'll, take a look at, I'll take a look at any proposal they put in front of me. You know, again, my, my, re, my reluctance is I don't, I, don't want, I don't want to turn into a criminal. Somebody got some, some guy up in, in uh, northern Wisconsin who transfers a gun to a friend, I didn't realize that was a problem. Uh, at the same time, we've passed the Brady Bill. 
These tragedies have not even been abated. Um, I would argue, and I did argue in my opening statement in the, in the uh, uh, hearing on Monday, if you read Robert Bork's Slouching Toward Gomorrah, he does a pretty good job predicting, this is two, two years after Yahoo was first uh, established, you know, in terms of search engine, he was talking about how isolated deviants, because now you have the internet, can connect to fellow deviants. And I would argue, like uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, defining deviancy down, that's exactly what's been happening. I think the main problem is that dynamic, where we have these kids from Columbine who are now heroes to a growing group of other, let's face it, primarily young men who are alienated and isolated in these, in these massive schools that we've created. Again, I, I just look at other root causes here in terms of what's driving this as opposed to the fact that we got 400 million guns, that's not going away anytime soon. And it's, by the way, it's a constitutional right to keep and bear arms. So again, you can pass all the background checks, it's not gonna solve this, it's not gonna fix it. Probably won't even stop one of these. So that, again, I, I just hate voting for things, okay, it's, it seems politically expedient at the time, it doesn't solve the problem, I'd much rather talk about real solutions, which is why I put forward you know, the Luke and Alex School Safety Act, there's something that can actually have an impact like hardening the cockpit doors did. This is a uh, last and we, you know, we could have banned, we could have banned uh, razor knives after 9-11. Didn't do that. You did on an airplane. We did it on an airplane. I know that. But we hardened the cockpit doors, which is more infractive. Uh, this is the last question here. It's another immigration question. Um, why can't Congress pass comprehensive immigration reform? It's a good question. It is. <laughs> I, I, I vote against the Senate version because it had about $260 billion of basically welfare benefits for non-U.S. citizens. I felt that was a real incentive to come in. I, I, w I was just, I was grossed out by the fact at the very tail end, they just threw $40 billion at the problem of border security. I mean, we don't need $40 billion, and that just grossed me out as well. Uh, plus, there's, there's so many, there's, I can't remember how many hundreds of uh, different areas of discretion for the Secretary of Homeland Security. To me, it just wasn't a serious bill. It would not have solved the problem. I sure didn't want to allocate authorized $260 billion of spending on a bill, 1,200-page massive bill that wouldn't fix it. So, again, the, the problem here is not that difficult. The, the main thing to, to stop the current flow, and again, President's, uh, uh, his administrative action may go a long way now that he's actually able to implement it because of the Supreme Court, but it, we've got to reduce that disparity in terms of what a valid asylum claim is versus what we let people in this country exploit our system. Uh, if, if we narrow that gap and we started returning people, just like in 2005 with Brazilians, I think you see a dramatic reduction of the flow of people coming to this country illegally, then maybe we could turn our attention and wouldn't be quite so divisive. All right. Senator, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. More episodes will be coming out shortly. In the meantime, do check out our other podcasts here at the Cap Times. Those include Wedge Issues, The Corner Table, and The Mad Splainers. You can find those and Live from Cap Times Idea Fest at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or just about anywhere else you can find podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back real soon. Thank you.
This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.